Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks, Kat. Um, my name's James, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date's the 3rd of August 1994 and my home group is the central group here at the bottom of New Zealand and I'm pleased to be here and look, welcome to the new people and uh, and before I start, if you are new, don't think because I've got some speaker from New Zealand, he must be some sort of expert on Alcoholics Anonymous and know all about step one, don't be deceived, I'm just another member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I've been here a bit longer than you and just made a lot more mistakes, and uh, and that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. So a wise member I, I used to know who passed away used to say that if you knew, you think us old-timers don't make mistakes. He said, uh, that isn't true. He said, if making mistakes got you drunk, we'd all be drunk. He said, what gets us drunk is lying and defending the mistakes. And uh, and that's my experience with step one, and it would be easy for me to sit here and talk about words in the in the book and in our literature, but I've always found that uh, that's just information to me. And, and what's always grabbed my attention is people's experience. And that's what we do. We share our experience, strength and hope with each other. And, and the book tells me it's about what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. And uh, and I'm a different human being. than walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope that that gets conveyed in this, that, that the change that can take place in Alcoholics Anonymous through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in case that gets lost and amongst all of this. But, um, but beginning at the beginning, I, I, I grew up in a family where um, I had every opportunity in life. My, my parents weren't, um, they weren't wealthy in a financial sense, but they gave me everything that a child needs. They gave me love. They gave me encouragement. They wanted well for me. They gave me a safe environment and, uh, and I felt totally out of place in it. I was—I um, never felt comfortable in any given environment that I was in as a child. I was—I was always a kid that had—I um, had a busy head and a churning stomach, and and, and a sense of difference. And it was—it was just always there, and there was no need for it to be that way. But I, I must point out that I did come from a long line of—I used to call them alcoholics, but it tells me in the book that we don't like to diagnose anybody as alcoholic. Um, but I come from a long line of big drinkers that died drunk. And, and alcoholism was never talked about in my family. But as I say, there was those people on my mum's side and my dad's side that had drank themselves to an early grave. And, uh, and my dad was actually sober. He wasn't sober in AA. He got sober in New Zealand before there was AA. He was the first person in my family that I even knew got sober. And he had a, uh, a spiritual conversion that took place way back. And I'd never seen him drink. And and my dad was just a, a good man, just like my mum. And uh, and I had an older sister. And I did well at school. I, I, I did well academically and I, and I did very well sporting-wise. And, and so there was every reason to fit in, in in areas of my life. But in any given group, I, I just, as I say, I always felt off to the side. And I was always searching. And, and look, a lot of the stuff I say, I didn't know at the time. I, a lot of the feelings I describe, I've learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I say anything that sounds clever, I've pinched it off somebody else in AA because I've been educated here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And people have put words to things that have gone on within me and within my life. 
And I, but I was always searching and, and I'd find a group of people and think, this is it. This is where I belong. And after a short period of time, I just knew it wasn't quite it, that I was somehow off to the side again and I didn't fit there. And um, I, the, the, the big book talks about, and this is part, all part of my first step, the big book talks about lack of power being my dilemma. And, and I always felt powerless and even any given situation growing up. But, you know, it was always the, the coach that picked the sports team seemed to have the power. It was the teacher that marked the exam that had the power. It was the girl that I asked to go out with me had the power of whether she would say yes or no. It was the person that interviewed me for the job that had the power. It was the judge that I was standing before had the power. It was the police officer. It was everybody else had this power. And I didn't know that this was due to my alcoholism, but my impression of power then became attitude and defiance. And there's a story in the big book uh, by Marty Mann, the first lady that got sober in AA, and, uh, and she makes a quote in there that I've always identified with and I've always loved it. And she says, inwardly frightened, outwardly defiant. And man, I identify with that. That was the story of my life. And I didn't want to be that way, but the older I got, the more I got became that way. And when people would give me advice or direction, this alcoholism in me would rear its head up and say, I'm not doing that. I will show you who's in charge here. And even though what they were often telling me, most of the time telling me, was what was best for me, I couldn't go along with it. And and that started creating problems in my life. And I didn't know that I was developing that, what Bill Wilson talks about, that collision with people, places and things. And that remained with me. <laughs> until the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and long after the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm sorry to say. But what happened was I, I was a kid that with other kids, we used to pinch liquor from, from parents' liquor cabinets and make horrendous concoctions and drink that. And that doesn't make me alcoholic because none of those other kids are alcoholic. Well, none of them are in Alcoholics Anonymous. What makes me alcoholic is, is the first time I got the effect produced by alcohol. And I remember I was drinking with some older cousins of mine who seemed quite worldly just because they were older than me. And um, I was always sort of intimidated by them just because of the feeling of inferiority that I always carried with me. And we were drinking away and I was about 13 years of age. And all of a sudden this feeling came over me that what I had to say was finally important. And they could all shut up and listen to me. And I'd never felt like that before. And so I started voicing my opinions on all sorts of topics I knew nothing about, which was going to be a pattern of my drinking. And um, But I, that night, for the first time, I experienced the phenomenon of craving. And Dr. Silkworth says that we have one symptom in common. We can't drink without developing a phenomenon of craving. And it doesn't happen in the average temperate drinker. It happens in alcoholics. And that phenomenon of craving compels me to, to keep pouring it in. The more I drink, the thirstier I get. And I got extremely drunk because I had no tolerance for alcohol and uh, said all sorts of silly things and, and woke up in the morning so sick, so hungover. I'd never experienced that before. But there was something in me that couldn't wait to do that again, that couldn't wait to capture that, that feeling of, of importance, of omnipotence, of fitting in, of just being a different human being. And I always like what a, an, a, an Australian speaker said I heard one time, and, and he said that alcohol did for him what a phone box did for Superman. 
And I thought that's what it did. It turned me into a completely different person. And I experienced that for the first time that night. And, uh, and I didn't know that I was going to pursue that for years to come. And, and little by little, I, I started chasing that. And little by little, drinking started taking over my life. And you know, I started declining in, in my schoolwork. I, I started uh, declining in my sporting endeavours. I started chasing drinking and chasing people that drank. The, I looked at people that seemed to, because it was difficult to get access to alcohol as a young fella, but um, I saw groups of people that were a bit older than me that had access to alcohol, and I started moving into those groups and uh, and I started developing a tolerance for alcohol. I wasn't very big, but uh, but I could drink. It, it took a while. It took a lot of throwing up and a lot of sick mornings. But I hung in there and uh, and I developed that. And and every time I drank at work, every time I drank, I had a feeling of confidence that I'd never had before. I I had that feeling of fitting in, of belonging, and and that was all I ever wanted. I just wanted to belong and feel like I belonged. And, uh, and I used to actually say that I drank to get drunk, but I don't believe that anymore. There was always a period in the night when everything was fantastic. I got to that point where people seemed to like me. They liked my jokes. I seemed to be attractive to women. They seem interesting. I'm comfortable in any given environment. And that was just fantastic. And I presume, because I have no idea, that when social drinkers hit that, that point, that they slow up on the drinking and they just maintain that feeling. But see, I'm, I have that phenomenon of craving where I've got to drink through that. I've just got to keep pouring it in. And I can start drinking at lunchtime and, and be drinking at midnight and I'm thirstier at midnight than I was when I started drinking at lunchtime. I didn't know anything about this phenomenon of craving that the more I drink, the more I've got to drink. And um, another thing I heard a lady say one time in, in, in one of our pamphlets, the, the 40 questions, it says, did drinking affect your reputation? And she said, drinking was my reputation and drinking became my reputation. I became very proud of what I could drink, the amounts I drank. And, and I could drink for days on end with very little sleep and nothing to eat. And, uh, and as I say, I, I, I thought that was a badge of honour. But by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I wasn't telling anybody how much I was drinking. But, uh, but my life started changing and um, I ended up leaving school uh, with no qualifications whatsoever. And um, and I started a job with the New Zealand Forest Service here in New Zealand, and I started living in single men's camps. And I used to look at these old men that lived in those camps, and, and I really thought that they had life sussed. I thought they've got the world by the tail. They didn't have a mortgage to pay on a house. They didn't have a wife to please. They could drink as much as they wanted and eat when they wanted. I saw it all as freedom. It never, ever occurred to me that a lot of those men had had homes one day, that had wives but they drank their way out of that. They were living in single men's camps because they had to, not by choice. And, and that just shows my skewed view of the world, that alcoholism always skews my view in its favour. Never, and, and, it, and it talks about that. You know, It talks about that, um, the delusion that I live in. And, and that's the thing, that I can't see reality as reality is. And so I... Um, when you drink the, the amounts that I drink and associate with the people that I associated with, I started getting in trouble. People started talking to me about my drinking. I had employers talk to me about my drinking. I'd had girlfriends, parents, judges, police officers, probation officers, because I started getting arrested. You know, And I, and I look back now and think about my poor mum and 
my mother had never even been in a courthouse until she had to come to children's court with me. And just about every um, every time I was arrested, it was associated with my drinking. And that never occurred to me until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But it talks about the alcoholic life becomes the normal one. And it's not only for me, the, the drinking life, but the way I live my life is alcoholically. And I don't recognise that fact. It becomes normal to me. The abnormal just became normal. And little by little, alcohol and alcoholism consumed my life. And um, I remember at 22 years of age, uh, I, where I worked, I conned the office girl to come out with me for the weekend. And she came back and uh, with horrendous stories about my drinking and driving and behaviour and drunkenness. And I hated her. I hated her for telling the truth. I hated anybody that told the truth. But we had a man there at, at that workplace and he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he wasn't embarrassed about that or afraid of disclosing that. And it's not an anonymity break. He was just disclosing his membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. The anonymity break comes at the public level. So anyway, the boss asked him to come and talk to me at 22 years of age. And, and he came and talked. And I remember thinking, you might be an alcoholic, you old fool, but don't lump me into that category. And he was considerably younger than what I am now. And um, But anyway, I did what I always did. I took a step backwards and the wall went up and I nodded my head and I said what I thought he wanted to hear and I went on, I was going to say my merry way, I went on my destructive path. I just carried on. And um, and more and more trouble came into my life, less and less ability to hold a driver's licence, more and more arrests, loss of jobs, loss of relationships, just constant letting people down. And, uh, and I was willing to pay the price because alcohol was still working in my life. And as a wise member of AA said, he said, alcohol couldn't have done so much to me if it didn't do so much for me. And that's what it did. It just worked every time. I was always excited about drinking, the thought of drinking. And and I, I never thought of the consequences of drinking. I don't know about anybody else, but how drunk looks and how drunk feels are two totally different things to me. So those people that were talking to me about drinking were seeing what it was doing to me. I was only seeing what it was doing for me. And like when I'm drunk, you watch two drunk people have a fight and it's embarrassing. They just look pathetic. But if I'm drunk and having a fight, I feel like I'm Mike Tyson, you know, but, but I'm not. I'm one of those people that swings and misses and falls over just like the rest of them. If I was running away from the police, I felt like I was running like Usain Bolt. But the, how quickly I was apprehended and how often I took knees out of trousers and skinned my palms and slid along for us tells me I can't run like Usain Bolt. But that's how it feels. That is the magic that alcohol always produced in my life. And, uh, and that coupled with that attitude, as I say, it, w- it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And then um, the year before uh, the year I stopped drinking, I had a sister who... Um, my sister was every mum's dream. My big sister, she did ballet as a kid and speech competitions and well academically and achieved ex- extremely well and married well and lived in Australia. And um, and she phoned me and she said, look, I'm, I'm drinking way too heavy. She said, um, we bought a, a bar as an investment. She said, I'm spending too much time there. In my ignorance and arrogance, I thought, drinking way too heavy. You've never even been arrested. I didn't say that, but I, and she said, I'm stopping drinking. I thought, Good luck to you. And uh, my sister stopped drinking, but she didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, and she got crazier and crazier and crazier the longer she didn't drink. 
and my brother-in-law ended up having to move out of the house. And after nine months of not drinking, my sister phoned my mother from Melbourne and she said, I'm going out to commit suicide. Now, I have no idea what it's like for a mother to hear that. And my mum tried to talk her out of it and uh, frantically rang the police in Australia. And a couple of, a couple of um, hours later, they found her dead in her car in a park. Now, alcoholism did not go on her death certificate. Suicide went on her death certificate. But I believe I know what killed her. And, uh, and that's the thing that I had a lot of trouble with in this first step when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous was differentiating between a drinking problem and, and alcoholism. Because they sound, alcohol, alcoholism, they sound like the same thing. But if my sister had had an alcohol problem, it would have been solved by stopping drinking. The problem would be gone. But my alcoholism shows up when I stop drinking. It shows up as fear and it shows up as guilt and it shows up as anxiety and loneliness and remorse and immaturity and oversensitivity, all those things I'd always suffered from. My sister's death didn't stop me drinking. I carried on for some time afterwards. And then I got to a point where my wife and I had split up yet again and I was unemployed and everything was gone in my life. And my wife said this time, no, there's no coming back. I've had enough. And I was absolutely desperate. And by what I thought was a series of coincidences, I run into that man who tried to 12-step me those years before. And um, you won't convince me it's a coincidence now. And if you're new and you don't believe in miracles, you expect a coincidence. And this man, I opened up to him for the first time in my life. I opened up about my drinking and my life and, and everything like that. And he said, perhaps you'd like to come along to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'd had one better idea, I would have done that. Because I didn't believe I was alcoholic. I had the Hollywood version. You know, an alcoholic was an old guy sitting on a park bench in an overcoat, drinking meths out of a paper bag. I didn't own an overcoat. I didn't drink meths. I didn't live in a park. I'd woken up in a few. But that was my version of alcoholism. It was always going to be something that I wasn't. And so I said to this man, though, I said, look, I'll, I'll come to the meeting. And I went along to a meeting and saw a bunch of people just like you who were the opposite to me. Um, you know, they were well-dressed. They spoke well. They, they treated each other with respect and dignity. And yet I was attracted to that. And I remember saying to my sponsor, why was I attracted to that? In the end, I was a... I was a product of biker clubhouses and seedy bars. And, um, and he said, James, it's a spiritual attraction. We can't explain that. If we can explain it, then it's not spiritual. But I got hope at that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. These people talked about their lengths of sobriety. I remember the man in the chair that night. He was 11 years sober. I couldn't believe it. Sounded like me to me he'd been sober since King Arthur was around. And so, but what he convinced me was, that this thing works. You can come here and you cannot drink. And I made a decision that night that I'll go to as many of these meetings as I possibly can get to in order not to drink. And, uh, and, and I lived 30 miles from my nearest meeting and I started going to four, five, six meetings a week. And, you know, I started doing what they told me to do and very reluctantly. But people painted pictures and, and gave me instructions and encouragement. I, I remember, you know, telling a man I wasn't too keen on this praying bit. And uh, he said, James, if you don't bend your knees, you may have to bend your elbow. Now that got my attention, things like that. And he said, why don't you just get on, the, on your knees in the morning and ask God to keep you sober for the day? And why don't you get on your knees at night and ask, thank God for keeping you sober? I could manage that. And I started doing that. 
And I said, oh, I've got a big book and I started reading it. I got a sponsor and did those things and I went to meetings and I didn't drink and, and life was fantastic. I never knew what it was like to drive across the, the town I lived in without worrying about being picked up by the police. I didn't know how quickly you could get it from point A to point B if you didn't have to worry about being picked up by a police check. I didn't know what it was like to come home straight home from work because I'd always gone to the pub and got drunk. I didn't know what it was like to have money in the bank. I didn't know all of these things. My wife and I got back together and uh, and, and that was that pink cloud. But little by little, my alcoholism started kicking in and I started suffering from what the book talks about, that restlessness, that irritability and discontentedness, unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. And I didn't know what was going on with me. You know, I'm... I'm at work and I'm threatening to fight people in the car park. I come home and the kids aren't just making that noise because they're kids. I'm doing it because it drives me crazy. And I'm full of road rage and I'm just, just stark raving sober. But I'm still going to meetings and I'm telling everybody, yep, everything's fine. I haven't had a drink today. And I thought, I'm like these people. I drink like these people. But there's something else wrong with me. There's a streak of nastiness in me and I don't know why it's there. But it is there, and I can't seem to get rid of it. And I didn't know what I was describing to myself was alcoholism. That there's always been far more wrong with me than I drank too much too often. And I didn't, couldn't see the need for the remaining steps. And the reason was I had the first step the wrong way around. I thought the first step says, I'm powerless over alcohol, therefore my life is unmanageable. It wasn't until it was pointed out to me that in the English language, there's a dash in the middle of that. And that dash means that the two thoughts are interlinked, but they are two separate thoughts. And so what I had to discover was in, in my, my interpretation of that first step, I thought, well, I'm powerless over alcohol. I get drunk and I don't get to work. I get drunk and I lose the car. I get drunk and I wake up and don't know where I am. I get drunk and I spend all the money. I get drunk and I get in the fight. That's all unmanageability. But what I discovered was the first step is actually the other way around. That my drinking is caused by my unmanageability. I, I drink because I get really, really lonely. I, get, I drink because I get really, really afraid. I get drink because I get bored. I, get drink, I drink because I'm so guilty about the past. I, get, I drink because I'm so afraid of the future. I, I drink because of my inability to live life on life's terms my inability to live and let live, all these slogans that Alcoholics Anonymous have. And like drinking, the only thing that could teach me about powerlessness over alcohol was drinking. And, and I understand today, you know, I, I used to be one of those ones that said, we don't drink no matter what. But if I read the, our literature and what the early members said, they say in the big book, they say, if you're not convinced, you step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drink. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. And I, I knew drinking wasn't the answer, but I didn't know what the hell was the answer to me going on. And, and a decade later, when they wrote the 12 and 12, they said to the doubter, we can say, bearing in mind what we've told you about alcoholism, perhaps you're not really an alcoholic. Why don't you try some controlled drinking? And Bill says that alcohol becomes our greatest ally. And that's the thing with it is that, you know, I would have thought that was sacrilegious to say that in Alcoholics Anonymous one time because I've tried to convince so many people not to drink. But drinking taught me about powerlessness. 
not drinking, I was going to say sobriety, not drinking taught me about unmanageability. And no one could tell me that. No one could give me that. I had to experience it. And it's and it's different levels for different people I've discovered. We all have to get to that point. And Bill says that in the 12 and 12, why this insistence that every AA hit bottom? Because few of us will practice the remaining steps unless we have to do that in order to stay alive ourselves. And that's what I had to do. I had to get to that point. And I used to curse my sister because she'd taken her life and I saw the devastation it did to my parents. And I knew that I couldn't do that. And I hated her for beating me to that. And I didn't have an answer. But what was, happened was I had a friend in Alcoholics Anonymous who hadn't drank for five years. And he didn't lose everything drinking, but he lost it not drinking. His wife left. He lost jobs. He was so volatile. And everybody knew he was just crazy, stark raving, sober. And um, anyway, he started to change. And I, I started saying to him, Marty, what are you doing? And he says, well, James, he said, after I'd lost everything, he says, I actually got down with a gun and I had it in my mouth. And he says, God, I will shoot myself, but I don't know what else to do. And he said, the thought came to him, the 12 steps. And he, thought, he said, he thought, that's the only thing in five years in AA that I haven't tried. And so he asked a man for help. And he said, and that's all I've done. He says, I've asked this man for help and he's helping with the steps. And I'm currently writing a fourth step. And I, I used to say, yeah, not that, Marty. What else are you doing? He said, James, that's it. That is all I'm doing. And so my MO has always been, if I can't discredit the message, and, and I've learned this in AA through inventory, if I can't discredit the message, I will discredit the message carrier. And so if I don't like what you've had to say all my life, I pull you to pieces. I take your inventory, and then that somehow discredits the message and justifies why I don't have to do what you say. But I can't, I cannot argue with the power of example. I couldn't argue with the changes that were taking place in Marty through beginning on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I asked that man to help me as well, and, and he was more than willing to help. And asking for help is one of the greatest difficulties I've ever had, and it still is to this day because my alcoholism does not want help in my life. And this man began helping me with the steps, and, and this is all still a lot to do with step one, and I began working on the steps, and we got to step four, and I began writing, and, uh, and I got to some stuff that I'd forgotten about, and I thought, I'm not telling anybody that. And so I, I went to meetings, and, and I didn't say to anybody, I stopped writing my fourth step. I just went back to, yep, haven't had a drink today. Everything's fine. And little by little, the head got really busy again, and the craziness started coming in that busy head. And, and I realized that when I was writing, I, um, my head had quietened down. And so I started writing again. And... Um, and the head quietened down again. Then I got to some stuff that the book talks about. We bury certain memories that are a nightmare, hoping they'll never see the light of day. And I got to some stuff and I thought, I'm not telling anybody that. And so I stopped writing again and, and the madness set in. And my wife and I were going to town this day and we had a station wagon. We had a young son in the car and we were having to fight again. And uh, I did what I always did and started sulking. I said, get your stuff out the back. You're not coming. She went around the back of the vehicle to get the stuff out and I just floored the accelerator. And it just came like a bolt out of the blue. This is with a few years of not drinking and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of AA meetings under under my belt. And uh, and she'll tell you today, my wife's a long-time member of Al-Anon, that she said it was the grace of God. She said, I should have went under that car. She said, somehow I went sideways into the garden. Now, when I got to town and calmed my son down, I realized that this is life and death. If I don't do something about my alcoholism, 
somebody will die. And I genuinely believe that that day was my first step where I fully conceded to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic, that there is far more wrong with me than I drink too much too often. And I need to do something about that. And that, that's what Bill talks about, that firm bedrock. I had to get to that point in order to do the things I was just terrified to do. And I was able to go on and write that fourth step. And God gave me something that was in me that, that uh, wasn't within me, and I was able to go and do five. And that's what each step has given me. It's been a building block where God has given me something that's not of my own that allows me to go on with it. And that's stuff that I was never going to tell anybody that I, that I tried to run my wife over about. I've shared on multiple occasions with people in the fellowship when I thought it would be a benefit to them. And I look back at that and think, you know, this really is seconds and inches. It's too late when I'm standing in the dock and I've killed the woman I'm supposed to love, the mother of my children, somebody's daughter, and say, I'll write the fourth step now. No, it's too late then. And that's how close it got to that. I could have missed this. I, I should have been spending my life long-term in jail because that is the alcoholism that I suffer from. And that's the unmanageability. And so what the whole point of the first step I've discovered is, is it's trying to teach me that self-sufficiency. It's trying to get me completely away from that. And when I realize that, that, that the drinking is caused by the unmanageability, the second step takes on a whole new meaning for me. Because I thought, well, I'm not drinking. God's taken the desire and the obsession to drink away. Therefore, he's restored me to sanity. But it's the other way around. It's the unmanageability I need God's help with on a daily basis. And still today, my life is still unmanageable by me. And I, and I can easily forget that, that I'm not management material. I'm just a foot soldier that takes his orders on a daily march and does the best that he can with God's help. And I've needed all the tools in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've needed a sponsor. I've needed a home group. I've needed to be in service. And I think sometimes some of the things we say are, are redundant in AA. You know, we talk about, You've got to go to a lot of meetings. You've got to read the big book. You've got to be of service. If you are working the steps, you will be at a lot of meetings. If you are working the steps, you will have a sponsor. If you are working the steps, you will have a home group. If you are working the steps, you will be being of service because that's all first steps done. And that's what it comes back down to. But I never thought I could ever get to a point where I would like doing this stuff and want to do this stuff. The 12 steps have changed my life. As I said, I'm a different human being than the one that walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. The person I was will drink again. The person I was has to drink again. Because all my life people were saying to me, James, you've got to change. James, this has got to stop. And I used to think, yeah, that's fine. But how the hell do you change? How do you stop this? I don't want to be like this. I've never wanted to be like this. I never wanted to be a source of constant disappointment and, and a liability to people in society. But that's what I was, and I was, I was doing the best I could with the tools I had. AA has given me a different set of tools, and they're a set of spiritual tools, and that's what the book talks about, a set of spiritual tools laid at our feet. And what I do with them is up to me, and that's the beauty of alcoholics. And I'm, I'm free to do anything I like, but what I've discovered in AA is I'm not free of the consequences of those choices. And so everything still comes back to step one for me. And look, I don't walk on water, I don't have a halo or any of that, some days I'm very difficult to live with. And some days, you know, whether or not I work a good program, people need to ask my wife, not me. But the reality is I am the best I've ever been because of Alcoholics Anonymous, because of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the best husband I've ever been. I'm the best employee I've ever been. I'm the best father I've ever been. I'm the best, I'm the most reliable I've ever been. I'm the best friend I've ever been. 
and and that's come about because of AA, nothing else. But it's come about out of desperation, out of that desperation of that first step of realizing that this is life and death. And it comes back to what that big book says, that I have to fully concede to my inner much self, not to you or anybody else, but I have to fully concede to my inner myself that I'm alcoholic, not that I have a drinking problem. You know, I hear some people say, oh, whoever got up the earliest this morning is the longest sober. And I know what they're trying to say. But if that was the truth, we'd be selling alarm clocks and not big books. Now, there's 40 pages in the big book on the first step. And that's what, it, and then the rest of it talks about my drinking and my thinking and my reactions to life and my overreactions to life. And that's what it is. That's that unmanageability. So, as I say, I, you know, I'm, I'm just a member of AA who's got a lot of experience of making mistakes in AA. But as I say, in case it gets lost in amongst the safety and numbers in AA, and those numbers are 1 to 12. Thanks for asking me to speak. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.